grateful for you, for your son and your abundant provision. And I pray it's not just a song that we sing, it's the true desire of our heart that forever you would be glorified, forever your name would be lifted high. Or we don't need any other solutions, we don't need any other knowledge. You simply need to be glorified. And we long for the day when you will come again, and every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord, we pray that you would honor the teaching of your word this morning, that your body may be built up, strengthened to bring you more glory throughout this week. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We're going to be looking at, get your Bibles out this morning, by the way, and kids, go to your children's church. Marie, make sure you do your proper exegesis and hermeneutics with those kids, all right? I have a funny story. I'll, I'll start with this. It's regarding my daughter Lydia. It's not to make fun of her. It's a, it's to. It, it ties into the kids and next Jesus and hermeneutics. She learned the verse at the previous church. Two are better than one because they have a better return for the work. I, I, I know I'm butchering the verse. I, I knew it, but two are better than one. They have a better return or a higher return for their work. She quoted that back to me as we were talking about chores. In other words, I, I asked her to do something and she didn't want to do it and she wanted my help. So she quoted that verse back at me. Two are better than one and a higher return, a better return for their work. It's six years old or something like that. And so, yes, she got the word of God in her and she used it improperly, but she still used it. Okay, that was a classic story. I remember telling the, the teacher who taught it, it was Debbie Pernardi, and Debbie was laughing and laughing and laughing about that. But never too young to know the Word of God. Let's get her Bibles out. In fact, would you like Lydia to do the sermon this morning? She can come on up, she can do it. She rightly divides the Word of God. Something like that, yeah. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12. This is the, one of the verses we'll be looking at this morning. As we continue our series on prayer, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Of course, the first part of this verse is what? Come on, people. What's Matthew 6, 12? Remember this? This is the last half of it. Oh, well. The handwriting was shaky. The stationery was lined loose leaf paper. The ink was black and the tone was desperate. The note was dated February 6, 1974. It was addressed to the U.S. government. I am sending $10 for blankets I stole while in World War II. You know, we should probably return those towels from the hotel. I'm joking. My mind could not rest. Sorry, I'm late. 
it was signed in XGI, then there was this postscript, I want to be ready to meet God. Um, this recruit was not alone in his guilt. His letter is one of literally tons of letters that have been sent to the U.S. government since it began collecting and storing the letters in 1811. Since that time, $3.5 million has been deposited in what is called the Conscience Fund. The Conscience Fund. In some instances, the amounts are small, only the remorse is big. One Colorado woman sent in two eight-cent stamps to make up for having used one stamp twice, which for some reason hadn't been canceled. A former IRS employee mailed in one dollar for four ballpoint pens she had never returned to the office. A Salem, Ohio man submitted one dollar with the following note when a boy, I put a few pennies on the railroad track and the train flattened them. I also used a dime or a quarter in a silver coating experiment in high school. I understand there's a law against defacing our money. I have not seen it, but I desire to be a law-abiding citizen. That was taken from the book by Max Lucado. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the first half of Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts. And since all of our sins, right, past, present, and future, were forgiven by God at the cross, to pray this does not mean we're asking God to forgive our sins, but what? We are to confess our sins to God. And we do this in a way so that we, we may once again experience the joy of fellowship with our loving Heavenly Father. And also to free our conscience from guilt. This is why these people were confessing what they did years ago. And the Lord's Prayer recognizes that man's greatest and deepest need now is really what? Yeah, you need to have your needs met in terms of provision to, to exist. But really, what is our greatest and deepest need in relation to God? We need to be forgiven. We need forgiveness. I want you to look at Matthew 6, verse 12. Take a moment and read it. Then jump ahead to verses 14 and 15 and read it. Now consider this thought on the importance our Lord places on forgiveness. Verses 14 and 15 explain the last part of verse 12. Okay? Not forgive us our debts, but forgive us our debts, as we, we may also have forgiven our debtors. So, from verses 12 to 15, you can count, the word forgive is used six times. Okay? Now, again, when you just simply recite the Lord's Prayer, you've memorized it and, and you pray it without thinking about it, um, you get the idea that, okay, there's obviously more to this. And I've tried to explain that to you. But if you don't add verses 14 and 15, you miss out on the last half of verse 12. How many of you ever thought about the supreme importance of forgiveness 
in the Lord's Prayer. It's just something we, with, by rote, just spit out, right? Our Lord is addressing our deepest need. Forgiveness. But pay attention to this. Five of the six uses of the word forgive don't necessarily speak of God forgiving us. Did you catch that? But what? Us forgiving others. So I want to briefly give you five biblical reasons why we are to forgive others. Okay, And I put these up here for you so you can see them. One is it reflects the character of believers. Just listen to this verse in Matthew 5, 43 and 46. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. So in other words... God is good and kind to those who are his enemies. He has forgiven those who are his enemies. They are experiencing it. We are all experiencing it today. And every day we do. It reflects the character of God. It should reflect the character of believers. Number two, it is the example of Christ. Did I just repeat that? It went back. Did it? Didn't. Oh, well. Number two is supposed to be, it is the example of Christ. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So it's the example. It reflects the character of believers. Number two, it is the example of Christ. Number three, as you can see there, it is the glory of man. Let's take a moment here. You should probably memorize this. Proverbs 19.11. In fact, if I were to give a test, if I were a teacher and I give a test... This is so important that I would tell you that this is going to be in the test, so you might want to know this one, okay? And that is Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger. Here it is. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. It is his glory. It is man's glory to overlook an offense. So in other words, we are most like God when we forgive, Now, you may be thinking, I've never thought of that, or that's really not true of me, and that's okay to an extent, because it is contrary to our sinful nature. Like me, and like you, when something happens to us that is wrong, we immediately tend to get offended. And that's a dangerous place to be, folks. And what... God is really saying here in this prayer about forgiveness is if you are like me, you overlook an offense. And offenses come in a variety of sizes and shapes and manners. Just as you can see someone that has not forgiven an offense. I say it this way, they look bitter. Have you ever, and you should be able to see someone who just looks bitter. You can see that in them. And we medically know that unresolved anger, bitterness, is not good for your health. This is a medical fact, okay? You should also be able to see, and I can see people that 
are kind of carefree. Things don't bother them. They're the people that it's easier or they have overlooked an offense. They're not in bondage to that offense. And so it is the glory of man to overlook offense. It's the glory of man to forgive. It's not what the world teaches. But that's what God's looking for. Number four, it frees the conscience from guilt. Okay? You know, David said this, and I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. But the final reason, and this is so important, folks, and people don't like to hear this, but it's true. And this is probably the offensive part of the sermon, so overlook what I'm about to say. All right? The final reason we forgive is more important than the other five I just read to you, or the four I just read to you, and it's this. It is a prerequisite for God's forgiveness. People do not want to hear that. If we don't forgive others... then we don't get forgiven either. Our own forgiving attitude is an indispensable condition of receiving the forgiveness of sins. It will be evident in you if you are truly a believer because you will reflect the character of your father. You will forgive. And you may struggle with it, but you still will forgive. If you won't forgive... That's not evidence that there's any transformation or any work of God in your life. You're not forgiven then. I can't put it any more clear than that. Because we live in a world that is trying to muddy the waters and is deceiving and compromising. Lord Herbert perhaps put it best when he said, He who cannot forgive others breaks the bridge over which he himself must pass. That's why we're going to go right into this, a hard spiritual principle. Now, Jesus gives us a spiritual principle in the Lord's Prayer that's just difficult, and that is this. God deals with us as we deal with others. Do unto others as you have them do unto you. How you deal with others is how God will deal with you. So there is no room in the heart of a Christian for offense, for unforgiveness, for, for bitterness, for unresolved anger, any of that. There's just no room in that heart. It's not in the heart of God. It should not be in our heart. Now this principle of God dealing with us as we deal with others, it's, it's found everywhere in the Bible. Just listen to this in Luke 6, 37, 38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. This, this victim 
mentality that we live in in our world that blames everybody else for the issues in, in their lives or their poor lot in life, how about you take that lens and you turn it inward and do the work in here that needs to be done? God will take care of the other part. He's promised to. Or Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. God deals with us as we deal with others. If I want to receive mercy from God, then I aim to be merciful to others. Matthew 5, 21 through 25. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Remember that? Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, therefore, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. So you cannot come offering to the Lord some sacrifice to deal with your own spiritual life until what? You've got to have it right with everybody else. I mean, there are probably some of you that came to worship this morning, worship the Lord, that is, who can receive instruction from the preaching of the Word of God, but you can't offer God acceptable worship. Well, why? Well, you've got relationships that are not reconciled. Let me qualify that. You need to be doing everything you can to reconcile a relationship. If the other person won't respond, then that's not on you. But most people avoid reconciliation. They avoid conflict, even though we're all here because of the ministry of reconciliation from God, the Father through His Son, to us. In some cases, some of you are the unforgiving party. So He won't accept your worship. This is what he is saying here. This is of paramount importance. Reconciliation before worship. Let's look again at Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. That can actually be translated, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven. So the idea is this. Before we ever seek forgiveness for our own sin against God, we already have forgiven those who have sinned against us. It's a present tense, ongoing thing. And since this world is full of offense, you're going to need to forgive. Remember the parable of Peter? How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? No. It's not 70 times 7, 490. It's an infinite number. Why? Because you've forgiven far more than that by God. And so you are in this constant state of forgiving people. You overlook an offense. You don't remember past offenses. I don't want God to remember all the times I've offended him. And to my knowledge, God has never brought up a past offense to me. We must remember the proper order. We forgive then we seek God's forgiveness. Therefore, 
An unforgiving Christian is a contradiction. It's a contradiction. And I have found in all my years of ministry, as we talk about unforgiving heart here, within the church, people are afraid to confront people about unforgiveness. When I taught this message for the first time, when I was going through that conflict with that couple in Bowling Green, Ohio, <laughs> it's just ironic as I sit there and think about this. I was actually going through that at that time. And so when I taught this, this message on forgiveness, having forgiven them, God was working through me in a powerful way that I had never, I couldn't see. I can't see, just enough why do you, when I'm up here preaching, it's often like I'm, there's this invisible glass wall here. I, I can only read faces, and there are so many times I think I've done a good job of the sermon, and I hear absolutely nothing from anybody. Other times I thought this flopped, and I get this constant feedback of how God has moved. So I am a bad judge of when God is moving. And so I'm, I'm preaching this sermon, and it was kind of you know, quiet and so on, but we had a, a Pollock happened to be after church that Sunday, and I had person after person after person come up to me. People say to me, that was of God, that was of God, that was of God. It's basically the same message you're hearing here. Yet there was one person that didn't like how I closed the sermon, which I basically said, if you don't forgive, then it's a sign you're not a Christian. That's kind of how I closed it, because that's what the text says, right? Well, it was a big problem in the church, because that person was a bigger giver, and he was a friend of one of the elders. And I was this, this you know, the campus pastor, and helping fill in for preaching, and so on and so forth. Eventually had a meeting with one of the elders uh, who didn't agree with what the elders were doing, but it was like, would you go up and say something, kind of clarify what you mean by the difference between struggling to forgive and forgive and so on and so forth. And he, in other words, this person was offended that I threw up the possibility that just because they aren't, they aren't forgiving, that they might be an unbeliever. I mean, it's right there in the Word of God, folks. I'm not going to sit there and sugarcoat it. But... There's other times I've been in meetings where people clearly won't forgive and, and the leader won't call them out on that. Well, what good are you doing to that person then other than assuring them of a false salvation? And they're damaging the, the witness to the body of Christ, going around being bitter as if that is okay. That is not a believer. If God were bitter, how would he treat you? I don't want to know. If God held grudges, if God didn't forgive, no, it, as far as the east is from the west, as far as he has removed our transgressions, we're forgiven. And he treats me not that way, but in consistent, steadfast love. And yet you just don't see that, it seems like. And people get afraid to call people uh, if you're not forgiving, as if it's a bad thing. No, it's the most gracious thing you can do. The most gracious thing I can do to a disgruntled person in the church that's causing division is to open that door and usher them out of the building and only welcome them back when there's repentance because I've got to protect this flock 
And it's not for even the protection of the flock that's a primary concern. It's for the very soul and the salvation of that soul of that person that is deceived into thinking that they are a believer. You turn them over to Satan in hopes that what? They'll come to a knowledge of the truth. And so this is a, a difficult message to preach in one sense, but it's, you know, we can't take half measures anymore in this world we live in, especially in Washington State. It is far too liberal, far too pagan. And even just, as you know, questioning certain things, i.e. that all lives matter, can cost you your job. So, let's... Judgment begins at the house of God. Let's take a look in here, an unforgiving heart. Turn to Matthew 18, 28 to 35. Matthew 18, 28 to 35. Remember this? But when that same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him, and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And don't forgive that, it's from the heart. Okay, now we went over this two weeks ago, but remember this servant had racked up a bill or a debt through collecting, embezzling, and wasting the king's tax money, it was beyond human calculation. And what did the king do? He forgave him. The same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is equivalent to three months' work. And he has him thrown in jail to pay off this debt. And while in jail, this man will be unable to pay back the money he owes, right? It shows how evil and unforgiving this servant's heart is. And this is a picture of somebody who wants to take all the forgiveness that God can give, but isn't willing to give it to somebody else. Naturally, how God views it. I have forgiven you infinitely more than you can ever forgive. And here, this person cuts you off at the intersection, and you're cursing them? Or this person lied to you, or this person betrayed you. Your spouse was unfaithful. Forgive. That's what we do. Are you that servant? It is if you harbor an unforgiving spirit in your heart. It's that simple. And it's something that you harbor. You keep it within you. Now this teaching about 
the extreme forgiveness, if you want to call it that, is not unique to Jesus. Paul writes the same thing when he says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And again, this stresses a point I was just making earlier about you know, calling people out. If they're not forgiving, and there's a, a, a pattern of that, then you should, for the sake of that person's soul, call them out on it. Because this is what Paul says. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Okay? And this is a hard message, especially today. Either the sexually immoral, which includes, of course, all types of sexual morality. Not just adulterers and, and homosexuality and all that. They don't get the kingdom of God. Nor adult, idolaters. Nor adulterers. Again, sexual morality nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of your God. Now, granted, look, these people were what? Sexually immoral, adulterers, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, they were that. They're not that anymore. Right then and there, you're not born a homosexual. You can change. You're not born a thief. You can be changed. Okay? But the key word I want you to see here for this morning is the word revilers. What the word does that mean? What's a reviler? Well, it's someone who blasphemes. I mean, they speak evil of others with the intent to blame and hurt. Yes, you're guilty of that at one point in time in your life. And probably because you were offended, by the way. But there are people who hate. They hold grudges. They're full of bitterness. And consequently, they rail on others with their speech. Those folks are all the characteristics of an unforgiving heart. A reviler. So when you are speaking negatively, tearing down, ripping somebody, okay, what's at the root of that? You obviously don't think highly of them, so something's happened between you and them, which goes back to a deeper issue of you've probably been offended, which goes back to the fact you haven't dealt with that offense because you haven't forgiven them. You certainly aren't loving them because what does love do? It does not take into account a wrong suffered, correct? Can I get an amen from the congregation? There you go, all right? Ron, where are you when I need you? There we go. All right. That's what a reviler is. Thus, an unforgiving person, they don't get to be in the kingdom. It's that simple. Pastor Ray Pritchard summarizes the consequences of an unforgiving spirit. I put those up here for us. I'm going to read them through you. And this list is far from complete. But if you have an unforgiving spirit, your fellowship with the Father is blocked or disrupted. The Holy Spirit is grieved. Your prayers will be hindered. They won't be answered. God leaves us alone to face the problems of life in our own power. Ugh. The devil potentially gains a foothold through our willingness to forgive. We force God to become our enemy. That's scary. We lose the blessing of God to our life. 
we waste time and emotional energy nursing a wounded spirit. You ever done that? We become enslaved to the people you hate, and we become like those who refuse to forgive. In Matthew 18, the unforgiving servant was put in prison to pay off a debt he will never be able to pay off. He will be in that prison forever. Folks, that's a clear reference to what? To hell. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that people who are revilers don't go to heaven. Now, does this mean that anyone who does not forgive others cannot receive salvation from God? Well, struggling to forgive is not what prevents us from reaching heaven. As long as we are on this side of heaven, we will do our good deeds imperfectly, including forgiving. Jesus died to cover those imperfections. But as they struggle to forgive... And perhaps for a season or so, I just give up, give up the fight and I nurture an unforgiving spirit. Well, you know, then I can be assured that I will suffer the consequences of an unforgiving spirit previously mentioned. Because if we think we can be indwelt by the Spirit of God and not make war on that unforgiving attitude... We're deluded. Refusing to forgive is what damns us to hell. Now, by refusing to forgive, I mean two things. You really have no intention to forgive. We cherish the grudge. We fondle the bitterness. Well, how? How do we do that? We do it in a real psychological, sick way. We replay the offense in our mind over and over and over again, because that feels good, because we're right, and they're wrong. And it somehow makes us feel superior. But you know what that does? It only does one thing, by the way. It drives the bitterness deeper into your already hardened My heart is sick enough as is. I don't need to feed that sick heart. Number two, if the forgiveness received from God, okay? If I receive the forgiveness from God through the agonizing suffering and brutal death of his son, Jesus Christ, if it's that ineffective in my own heart that I am bent on holding unforgiving grudges, dude, don't deceive yourself. There's no evidence there. You're not saved. You are not saved. I mean, what else more can God do? There is no greater sacrifice. So how can I tell the difference? Well, back, you remember the story, I mentioned this years ago to you guys, but when I was in college my junior year, I had a roommate, a great guy, George Atkins. We roomed together, and um, George had some little annoying habits, and I was in the process of being drained from a, a very busy summer to going to a really busy school year and involved in 30-plus hours of ministry during the week with Campus Crusade, and I would just begin to be dried up spiritually, and things about George started annoying me, which were legitimate. I'd have messages that he would not give me about meetings I was supposed to be at, so more than one time I'd be in, in the dorm room, I'd get a phone call at 5 after 7, from a group meeting I was supposed to be in, 
that he forgot to give me the message. So I had to hightail it 15 minutes up the hill to a meeting in campus. And this happened so often that his fiance got upset at George and she got an answer machine and put a big notepad with a pen next to it and said, write messages down for Chris. And he never would do that. He would eat my food. I was on a limited food plan because I chose to. He had this big food plan. He would eat all my food in the dorm room. Like, dude, what are you doing? Okay. He would <laughs> love peanut butter and he would eat peanut butter kind of lick it clean to an extent, and then set the, the, the slobbery peanut butter-filled spoon on my desk, and it would just sit there and dry all day. You know, you get the point, what I'm saying. It's like being married to Don, right? So, um, Don Theodore, Gig Harbor, Washington, married to Carol Theodore, where she's old, Gig Harbor, Washington. But those things started to bother me. Okay, and I didn't know what was going on, and, and I didn't know, really know about this whole bitterness thing. I just knew I was dry spiritually, and I knew I needed to talk to him about it. So the last day before he left, I kind of confessed this stuff to him, and he was so gracious, and we worked through it. And I went home that summer, and just my body was so drained from the schedule and from this, this bitterness that I was dealing with that, you know, it shut down. I had back problems, and I ended up taking the whole summer off, and kind of rediscovered my love for the Lord. And it wasn't until, and that happened in the, the fall and in, in spring of 1991, it wasn't until the summer of 92, when I was listening to a sermon by David Jeremiah, that God really revealed to me what was going on in my life, what had happened. And I, at that point in time, I made the choice, I will never let that happen again to me. And that was reinforced in November of 92, when I'm meeting with a pastor who was on his way out of a church that was going to eventually support me, and he was so bitter and so negative and critical of the people in this church. I remember saying to myself, I will not become like that. But that lesson was learned because I would need it in 2004 when I went through this whole situation with that couple in Bowling Green. And I only want to remind you of one part of that story which really fits in here. When we went to meet with the pastor and that couple and myself and Erica and the other staff member, you know, God bless the pastor who tried to work through this difficult situation, but it was wrong in the sense of it was a table that was set up and they were on one side and we were on the other. That was the first mistake. It never should have been that way. It became very clear they didn't want to reconcile. We did. The three of us did. They didn't. And it was a dart-throwing time for them to just continue to tear us down. Uh, they lied, they revealed stuff about their character, um, and when I began to press some of the issue and bring some things out, um, it became obvious that they were really the problem. But towards the end of the meeting, before we left, we were willing to forgive and move on, even though we really hadn't done anything wrong. Clearly they were hurt, though. But the pastor turned and looked to that young lady and said, you know, you know, will you forgive? And I remember her, and I'll probably never forget this till the day I die, she shook her head like this. I mean, that wasn't even an option for her to forgive. Now, let me put this in context. She grew up in the church. She got involved and serious about her faith, got involved with, with, with Campus Crusade, um, you know, served and, and ministered and, and we brought her in our ministry and worked with her and, and she was leading stuff and doing ministry and she just 
flat out wouldn't forgive. Now, I fault the pastor at the time, who was a good friend of mine. He needed to not rip into her, but to sternly warn her. See, that's a picture of somebody that I'm just flat out refusing to forgive. It manifested itself prior to that when I called her, and you remember this conversation. I was up in my office, and Erica was in the stairway at the bottom of the, you know, a good, about as far as for me to say where you are, Judy. And I called to kind of break the ice and, and reconcile work with her, and she was just yelling and screaming at me, and vicious, vile, vitriol things were coming out of her, and it was so loud that Erica could hear it. You know, and she was hoping that the judgment of God would fall upon me. It was just awful. That is not the, the, the lifestyle of someone who is a believer. And yet here they were in ministry, folks. They were in the church of God. They were wheat in their tares. Now, you know, when, when you look back on that and so on, I, again, want to say to you that Satan will keep people in bondage and think it's, you can think it's okay to not forgive, to hold grudges. There is nothing, that is a lie straight from the pit of hell. You have got to forgive. Prove that you are a child of God by forgiving, eagerly forgiving. Be taken advantage of, still forgive, right? Don't damage the witness. Forgive. Forgive, forgive. And so, Matthew 6, 12, it's a warning to us. This is what you need to hear. British pastor and evangelist John Wesley, while in Georgia, was traveling with General James Oglethorpe, who was angry with one of his subordinates. The man came to the general and humbly asked for forgiveness, but he was gruffly told, I never forgive. Wesley looked at the general in the eye and said, then I hope, sir, that you never sin. But why did Wesley say that? You see, because St. Augustine said that Matthew 6, 12 was a terrible petition. He pointed out that if you pray these words while harboring an unforgiving spirit, you are actually asking God not to forgive you. This prayer, which is meant to be a blessing, becomes a self-inflicted curse. This is why Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, said that if you pray the Lord's Prayer with an unforgiving spirit... You have virtually signed your own death warrant. I mean, can I be any more clear on this issue about forgiveness? It's not the way of the world, by the way, but it's the way of God's people. And if you're going to be different, you know, and again, the supreme importance of this in this prayer, six times that word forgive is mentioned. But what about a forgiving heart? How do I cultivate then a forgiving heart? We'll go back to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts. The first thing you do is what? That's referring to confessing your sins. You have to get it in you that you are a radically corrupt person. You are not attractive to God. No one is. You're offensive. Okay? You're going to fail. You're going to offend. It's the fallen human nature. Which means that if there is a, a long time before you're confessing sins to God, then you've been deceived because you're going to be a sinner. You should be sinning less, but still, it is who you are. 
and you are shackled with that sinful nature, and I long for the day when I will be free from that in his presence. But thus he's provided confession of sin. So there's an ongoing, and again, remember this, figure us our deaths, it's a present tense, you're continually confessing your sins. And when we don't see ourselves as very great sinners, we don't appreciate how greatly God's forgiven us. And when our own sins seem small, and let's face it, most of the time our own sins seem small, boy, the sins of others, they are huge. And the verse is also true. The greater you see the depth of your sin before God, guess what? The less of of the sins of others you see. And the less they will bother you. And one of the reasons we need to acknowledge our sins regularly is to serve as a constant reminder of how sinful we are. How constant is his forgiveness. And these reminders make us prone, make us more prone to forgive others. What does forgiveness look like? Again, let me put these up here for you. This is what forgiveness looks like. And this is, again, not the way of the world. You face what they did and forgive them anyway. Live in reality. You hurt me, I forgive you, I'm moving on. You don't keep bringing it up to them. See that? You don't talk about it to others. You know why you talk about offenses to others? Do you want to know why you do it? You haven't forgiven them, but, but you do it because you like to feel good about yourself, that you were wronged. And you like making the other person who hurt you look bad. It's taking that knife and turning it. You show mercy instead of judgment. You refuse to speak evil of others. You choose not to dwell on it. You pray for them. Ask God to bless them. Do not rejoice at their calamities, and you help them when you can. You see, more than anything else, as I learned, is that forgiveness is a choice. Now, there are, probably everybody in this room will never have to forgive, like this last story I'm going to share with you before I close the sermon. A story that you've heard before, but it's good to be reminded, the story of Corey Ten Boom. Remember that story? She was in a church in Munich, Germany, where she was speaking in 1947, two years after the end of the World War II, that she saw him, a balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. In one moment, I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. Memories of the concentration camp came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy, my sister, and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in her home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, his hand thrust out, saying a fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. He was saying, I was a guard there, 
But since that time he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I'd like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hands held out, but it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I'd ever had to do. See, she's struggling to forgive. Okay? For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives us has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is an act of the will. And that is so true. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this, his, this, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, and former guard and former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. With Corey, Corey's, willingness to, with Corey's willingness came God's power to forgive her former captor. And so the application point, obviously, is pretty simple here. Ask the Lord to show you, you know, where you need to extend forgiveness. Don't harbor that. Okay? Don't harbor that at all. Amen? Amen.